Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. Our Bible reading is taken from James 4, 13 to chapter 5, verse 6. At the end of this reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. Please kindly respond by saying thanks be to God. James 4, 13 to chapter 5, verse 6. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why then? Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it's sin for them. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moth has eaten your clothes. Your silver and gold are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eats your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mold your lungs, your, mold your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Tosin. And um, again, I don't know if you came in in between uh, when people were singing. And now, good morning to you. Uh, my name is Femi. So we've been looking, for those who have not been with us, we've been looking at um, a series through the book of James. So we're going through the whole book of James. And we call it the Gospel Community because, really, James is the most practical book of the New Testament. He gives you so many commands, so many, well, I won't say, I was going to say advice, no. He gives you a lot of commands, this is what you should do, this is what you should do, that it may almost seem like James is, as some um, uh, church fathers had thought, that uh, so one, actually Martin Luther thought that the book of James should not be in the Bible because he looked at it with, contrasted it with Galatians, and like, are they saying opposite things? Well, that's another story for another day. But he's so practical that you can actually miss um, I think, understand what he's saying. Because James is not anti the gospel. He's basically saying, here is how the gospel works out in community. And so we've done four th- um, uh, uh, messages on that. So this is the fifth one. Perhaps I should start with this. Now, um, most of us, not Delmo, like, uh, on, on like Delmo, but most of us will work in organizations. And any organization, you would know, serves a purpose that is outside of themselves, right? Outside of the people that are in there. So for instance, most 
for-profit, profitable organization, or not profitable, but at least for-profit organization. Some would say my, my organization is not making any profit. All right, most for-profit will either be making products, that is whether food, toys, tools, buildings, or they provide services, healthcare, travel, consultancy, education, to the people outside. The people outside, we call them what? Customers. So they exist for their customers in some way. But at the same time, if you run an organization and you want it to succeed in the long term, you shouldn't only think about those who are outside, but you should also think about taking care of those who are what? Inside, who we call the staff, employees, and all of that. Okay. Because if you don't take care of your staff and your employees properly, you know, if you don't pay them, maybe here in Nigeria, here in Nigeria, people have, the threshold is high, honestly. I meet some people, they'll say, I've not been paid for five months, and they're going to work the next day. Right? People, it, it's, just, it's just like that. Now, eventually, if you continue to owe people like that, or if you are the kind of person that abuse your workers, they will turn against you. Some of them can sabotage the company. Others will leave the company. What happens to your service or your product to those who are outside? Obviously, it becomes hampered, right? So if you want to have an organization that succeeds long term, you should not only think about those who are on the outside, but you should also think of those who are on the inside. Now, how then do you treat those who are on the inside? Well, you suppose that the head of the organization or the leadership of the organization have certain values that they embody. Now, if individually they embody that value, and each of the people in that organization also embody the value, then hopefully you can have harmony among the staff in the organization, and that harmony then leads to good, productive work that serves the uh, interests of your customer, right? Very simple, isn't it? Like, I wish it were that simple. But in theory, that is what should happen. If people embody a certain value, and those values are good values, and they try to treat each other based on those values, the organization will be strong together. And if they are strong together, they can do their jobs effectively. They do their jobs effectively, they can serve the customers, and they can do all of those things. So you follow me with this analogy. A lot of I said, let's call the individual embodiment of the values the I. And then we can call the staff together the them, at uh, the we. And then you can call the customers the them. Now, throughout the book of James, we've been discussing how the I of Christianity, that is, Personal gospel renewal. If you receive the gospel, the Holy Spirit lives in you. You keep going back to this gospel, and the gospel keeps changing you as an individual. Those individuals together come into a community, the them, the gospel community. And so we've been saying when we live together, when we are called together this way, if the gospel is actually together, oh, sorry, the we, the we, the we. If the gospel is actually working among us first individually, we are put into this community of people where we want to come against issues of injustice, for instance, or last week, uh, how we use our tongue, that's uh, two weeks ago, and then last week, how we, what? How we are gracious with one another. 
If we do that, that community not only holds together, but that community is strengthened together. So we've been talking about the dynamics of the internal, uh, if you like, relationships within the community. But nonetheless, those who are shaped in the community of God's people, far often than not, most of those people spend their time outside of that community. In other words, the I is important, the we is important, but there is also a them part of it. How would you, who is in this gospel community, shaped by this gospel community, when you go outside, do people see the gospel through you? Now, don't get me wrong. When we go out, the primary way we get the gospel to people is by telling them about the gospel, what we call evangelism. But as a witness to the message that you are talking about, that message, have you embodied it in a way that those who are out look and say, hmm, this is attractive? Take an example. Like our second sermon where we talked about the gospel community should be an impartial community. And by that we meant there should not be discrimination along socioeconomic lines. Because we care about justice in that regard, justice internally. But if you care about justice internally, how about justice externally? Because if people see you as only caring about the poor among you, and you don't care about the poor outside of you, then you become someone who is just tribalistic. No, the gospel requires that those who experience justice and equality internally should also show it externally. Because you, don't have, you shouldn't have a life here and a life outside. So, in that regard, we want to look at this topic of the gospel community being a just community. And by that, I'm going to spend most of the time talking about how we live outside of the community, as James points to. To do that, we have three points that I want to go through. The first is the deconstruction of the unjust. The deconstruction of the unjust. The second is the denunciation of the unjust. And then the third is the salvation of the unjust. The deconstruction of the unjust, the denunciation of the unjust, and the salvation of the unjust. Now let's look at the text again. James opens with these words. He says, now listen, you who say. Now before I go into that, one of the things you find about James is that James is actually, you, you would notice if you read his book over and over again, that this guy is really steeped in scripture. In fact, James he is a master of what we can call biblical literature. What do I mean by that? Now, this passage that we read is divided into sections, 13 uh, to 17 of chapter 4, and then 1 to 6 of chapter 5. James employs two different kinds of biblical literature in the two sections, and he uses that to address certain people. Now, in this first part, he employs what we call wisdom literature. Wisdom literature. Wisdom literature we find mostly in the book of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, some of it in the Psalms, and well, songs, uh, songs of songs, and, and somewhat also you can say Job. And so when James employs this wisdom literature, what's he trying to do? Because wisdom literature basically is trying to identify some two people. One, the foolish, and second, the wise. And you, you just identify them through their actions. So James is trying to critique certain people and saying, look, what you are doing is foolish. And what is it they were doing? He said, they boast. Look at verse 16. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. 
not only do I say that they boast, that the boasting is foolish, but the boasting is evil. All such boasting is evil. Now, who, is the who are the people that he speaks to? Let's go back to verse 13. Now, listen. You who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this city or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. What's wrong with that? <laughs> right? Some of you would have made plans. I hope you've made plans about tomorrow. And not just tomorrow, you've made plans for your whole week. You're like, what can be wrong? What is evil with someone that is planning? And it may seem like there's a contradiction there because actually, when you read the wisdom books of the Bible, the Bible is very positive about planning. Even listen to Jesus himself. Jesus says, ah, which one of you, you know, wants to, uh, maybe you want to go to work. You don't sit down, look at the option plan and say, ah, these people are too, these people are too, they are too, they are too big for us, they will kill us. So what do you do? You send an ambassador. Or if you think that you can get it right, you know, you look at the cost, you plan. Paul, in trying to think about who will succeed him and the ministry to continue going forth, he started to identify, he looked at four generations. He told Timothy, he said, look, the things that you have learned about me, right, you, Timothy, so the things you've learned about me, Paul, first generation, you, Timothy, second generation, commit to faithful men, third, that will be able to teach others also. What? Four. Four generations. The Bible is all about planning. So why is James criticizing poor, uh, uh, people who plan? People who plan for their business. If you don't plan for a business, will you be able to pay your people? I know some people try to run their business that way, but, uh, well. James is not on your side, let me just tell you. No, it doesn't. This, James is not critiquing planning per se. He is critiquing the arrogance behind the planning. Look at what he says in verse 16. He says, as it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. And notice what he changes. The word planning is no longer planning. It is now what? Scheming. You boast in your arrogant schemes. This is somebody who, well, let me put it in another way, and hopefully this will make it clear. Let me ask a question. Who is in control of your life? I, I know, of course, now you're in church. What are you going to say? <laughs> so did God brush your teeth for you this morning? For those of you that brushed your teeth. Ooh, low blow. Who is in control of your life? Now, most of us will say, God. Now, if I boil down the question to more specific things, they will um, particularly as we think of how we use our wills. There are usually two schools of thought. Now, permit me, this is not the day to do this, but unfortunately, I don't control the text. Permit me to be slightly philosophical this morning. So two schools of thought, most of us embody this school of thought. Well, one, let's call it libertarianism. Libertarianism. And that school of thought, look at, is in verse 13 again. Tomorrow, today or tomorrow, we will go. We, the individual. We, that is the individual, I am in control of my life. Now, some Christians will put it this way. When God created the universe, he created the universe with laws. Then when God created us, the most important thing he gave to us is free will. So that we can have the freedom to choose 
and become the ultimate determinant of our destiny. In other words, put it this way. Let's say God, as he designed the universe and put all these things, he put this law, and he calls it the law of gravity, right? And it means that whatever goes up must come down without, if you don't have the force to, to, to beat the gravitational pull. That whatever goes up must come down. And so if on a particular day you are feeling very happy with yourself, you got a promotion based on how well you've worked, and decided to put R. Kelly's song, I believe I can. And so you now go to the top of a building, you're feeling so giddy, and you start to, you jump off the cliff, and you do what? You fly, right? Or you meet with the law of gravity. In other words, you decided to jump. You decided to jump. God has put the law. When you fell down and died, it was you that was in control of your life. You determined the outcome of your life. And so they will say something like this. Another law could be, if you work hard and you plan, God has said, if you work hard and you plan, these both achieve economic results all the time. So the person can say, show me a poor person, and I'll show you either a lazy person or a chaotic person or both. Because ultimately, libertarianism says we are fully in control of our lives. That's school one. School two is called determinism. And now, it's not exactly what's in verse 15, but we can just take something out of it. Now, if you look at verse 15, it said, instead you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, let's just stop there, the Lord's will. Now, these people will say that what we are going to be, what we are going to do, has already been determined by fate or God. We're like puppets on a puppet string, right? God is just, you know, doing us like this. We're like robots. God has determined all the outcomes and is behind all the minutiae um, actions. We can't really determine anything on our own. In fact, what you call a choice, what you call a choice is really a mirage. Because everything has already been determined. In fact, you would even say any bad choice that is made, if I make an evil choice, as some people say, if it was God that did it, then you cannot hold the person responsible. Why? Because if the first school said we are fully in control of our lives, this second school determinism says we have no control of our lives. So which one is it? And some of you here are already thinking, I mean, some of you that like theological debates, you can already hear the predestination and election things coming out somewhere here sounding. Now, the problem with the first one, let me say, as a Christian, the problem with libertarianism is this. If our choices are ultimately what matters, if our choices are ultimately what matters, how can you be sure that whatever God has promised in the Bible will come to pass? If ultimately, Lola, Gloria, and uh, 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 Priye all decide on a particular thing that they're all looking towards, they take three opposing actions. How do we know which one is going to come to pass? At the end of the day, God is just standing there. God wishes that certain things will come to pass, but he's left it ultimately to us. You cannot be sure that God's purpose will come to pass if we are ultimately in control of our lives. The second one, the problem with it is, really, I think this is a really good critique, 
why should I be held for any, why should I be held responsible for any of my actions? At the end of the day, it's God that is doing it. So if I do something bad, if someone kills or slaughters someone, why should he be held for his actions? Ultimately, it is God that is determining that. Mm. So where do we go from here? Libertarianism or determinism? Of course, there's always a third way. And I want to propose a third way I think that the Bible teaches. Because when we read from the Old to the New Testament, you reveal something, it reveals something more nuanced. Now, let me say right from the get-go. By the time I finish explaining this, it's not going to satisfy all your questions. This has always been a very mysterious part of, the, of, of both philosophy or just everyday thinking and also of the Bible. But I would say that what the Bible offers us is something more nuanced, something more balanced, that at least takes care of most of all of many of the questions that we have. All other questions, you, you give it to God when you see him, okay? So let's try this. Now, let me give you two Old Testament passages quickly, and then we'll look at one New Testament passage that, and then come back to James. So for instance, take Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33. The, lost, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. The lot is like throwing a die, right? How many of us have thrown dice before? Just throw. You, you played Ludo, right? You played Snakes and Ladders, right? You played Tete, right? right? Uh, sorry, what's that? I mean, who, who knows that? Who knows what Tete is? Eh? Olumide, Olumide. You know, Sayakori, you know, you know. Those days, some of, some of those days were really hard. They were bad. But some, you won. You won. That's the way. We thank God for Jesus. That's like gambling, right? You throw it, it is per chance, right? If, if the thing is not rigged, you don't know what's going to come. So we leave it to chance, we say. But chance isn't a thing. There is no such thing as chance. Chance cannot determine anything. Some people say, well, it's the wind, it's the air, yeah, yeah, yeah. But the Bible says that amidst all of that, there's a God that determines it. Or put in a more practical situation. Joseph was born to Jacob and what's his mom's name? Is it, uh, Rachel. But he was the 11th of uh, 12 children. By the time he was born, he was the last child. He was a spoiled brat. And his father loved him so much. And very stupidly, he used to make his brothers jealous. All the dreams that he would have that showed he was superior to the, his uh, brothers, he would go and share it with them. Eventually, they got sick and tired of it. They sold him to slavery, which was wrong. They sold him to slavery. And, and eventually, he landed in Egypt. And then somehow, even though he went into someone's uh, house, he was a servant, he became the highest servant. The, the, the wife wanted to sleep. The wife of the master wanted to sleep with him. He didn't allow. She accused him. He sent to jail. Eventually, in jail, he interprets people's dreams. Somehow, 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 God takes him to Pharaoh's um, uh, palace. And he becomes second in command, like prime minister of the whole of Egypt. There's now a famine. He has planned well because God had revealed to him this what was going to happen. He planned well for Egypt. And now people from other nations came to get food from Joseph, including his brothers who didn't know him. So J Joseph now sets up. He, he now has, a, he has another brother that he wants to come. He wants to bring all of them. So he kind of tricks them, makes them believe that they actually stole something. Then he reveals himself as Joseph. He brings the father. Jacob, all of, that, all of them come into Egypt. He takes care of them. But Jacob now dies. And those guys now say, ah, our own don't happen. So they now come to meet Joseph and say, look, oh, our father's dying, dying request. 
was that you should not do anything to us. Now, Joseph saw behind all of that. And in Genesis chapter 15, uh, 50, verse 19, 20, Joseph said this. Do not fear, for, I am, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant, it, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring, to, uh, to bring, to bring it about the many... Wow, I can't see it. God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Notice what, what he says and what he didn't say. He did not say God meant it for good, so you guys are very nice people. You see, you are just working the plans of God. When you were doing this thing, when you were scheming, you meant it for what? That's their will working out. But what God was working out was the saving of many people. That was God's own will working out. You see, the Bible teaches that, it is, that both human will and God's will are able to exist together in, a ten, in some kind of tension. God's totally in control, and yet there is the viability of human actions. They exist. Your will actually matters. If you don't sit down, you will not be sat down. <laughs> the things that we do matter, we can be held accountable for them. Let me give one more example. In Acts chapter 27. In Acts 27... I'm um, going to 20, 21, 24, 30, 32. But Paul is being transported along with some others as a prisoner to Rome. He's going to Caesar. He's advised, he gave advice to the people sailing at some point that they should not sail at a certain time. But they ignored the advice. So now they were now in trouble. They, the boat was in a terrible state. They'd entered a storm. And in verse 23, let me, let me read verse 23 uh, here, uh, this Paul speaking. Paul then says, last night, he's speaking to the people. He said, you should have listened to me, but he didn't. Then he says, last night, an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. You know what Paul was saying? The, as King James, none shall be lost. Nobody is going to die here. Later, they still ignore Paul's advice. In fact, some people don't really believe him. So just like in the Titanic, right, the big ship is, sail, is, 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 is about to sink. There are some small boats. Some people want to use that small boat, and they want to escape. And so this is what happens, verse 13. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors, stupid sailors, let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending that they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Paul saw this. And so Paul then said to the, to, to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it drift away. None of them died. Now, whose will was it? God had already promised no one was going to die. So at the end of the day, God's promise was fulfilled, wasn't it? And yet, if Paul did not warn those people about trying to escape, and they did not obey, they would have died, isn't it? But God's means of fulfilling his promise was the revelation to Paul and also the warning of the people who are trying to escape. You say, oh, no, but what if they disobeyed? Don't you get the point? They were not going to disobey. Was God just making them like robots? No, no. 
God sent a warning to them. They remember the fact that, ah, we, we disobeyed this Paul before, and look at what happened. And through the means of that warning, God preserved them. Whose will was at work? God's will was at work, and the people's will was at work as well. In fact, that is what James is saying, that a more balanced approach, go back to James, he says, no, this is what you should say. If it is the Lord's will, the Lord's will there, we will live and do this or that. This we can call compatibilism. That is, both the will of God and human will somehow exist in this tension that never says that human beings are the ultimate determinant of our destiny. God is in control of all things. But at the same time, God's control of all things can never, doesn't act in a way that makes human beings um, not responsible for their actions. When you take a different approach, like some of the people that James was criticizing here, the one that says, my plans are the things that will always make me succeed. It's what I do. It's how I plan and put all of these things into perspective. James says that person is actually not seeing that he's human. He's temporal. You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. That person has not come to an acknowledgement of the limitations of their knowledge. Why? Do you even know what will happen tomorrow? When we put plans there, we think we know what's going to happen tomorrow. Maybe I can give a very quick example. We planned for the, theolo- uh, for the Milan Fund Day yesterday. And on Friday, we were meant to use, uh, we planned throughout that we were meant to use a particular place. And on Friday, we get a call that that place is no longer available. Friday at 2.30 p.m., typical Lagos. You have booked somewhere for almost a month, and they now tell you it's not available. I mean, that, uh, the people that were working on it, we could not do any other thing but trying to look for some way. We tried landmark. We tried different places because we're thinking there's a way we want to do this thing, and we need a suitable kind of venue. Cut long story short, we get another place. This place is over three times what we're paying for this other one. We use it yesterday. And what happened yesterday, about twice the number of people we planned for turned up. The original place that we had hoped for would not have taken them. Now, at best, you could have crammed us all together, the adults, maybe. But the children need to have been playing around. But then what else happened yesterday? It rained. So meaning that the vast majority of our time together would have been adults and children, about over 100 people crammed in a place that really is designed to take about 40, 50 people. Did we know what was going to happen tomorrow? Although my wife said that, the forecast said that it was going to rain. (laughs) But the forecast did not tell how many people were going to come. Does that mean we shouldn't plan? No. But that when you plan, as you exercise your will, you should add also that if the Lord wills, because God ultimately knows everything and is in control of everything. Do we get the point? Because if you don't, the kind of person that behaves and thinks like that ends up committing sin. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it's sin for them. When the evidence keeps showing you that you are really not control, in control of your life and you keep 
admitting that you are in the actions that you do, you are sinning. And if you continue in that kind of way, you become a certain kind of person, which we'll now turn to. Number two, the denunciation of the unjust. James the sage, that is the one that was speaking in wisdom, now turns to James the prophet. So the second kind of biblical literature we then see now, from verses 1 to 6 of chapter 5, is very similar to the kind that you find in the Old Testament's prophet. And what we find with James here is that he's angry. He is really, really angry. Why is he angry? One thing is making James angry. Verse 3, you have hoarded wealth. You have hoarded wealth. He's speaking to a particular people, rich people. This is verse 1. Now, listen, you rich people, you have hoarded wealth. Now, this was not to every rich person there. He wasn't speaking, don't use this, as some have used it with something called liberation theology, to almost make wealth bad. That's not true. James was speaking to a specific, um, specific uh, group of people. These were people who had funded a lifestyle of luxury and self-indulgence, in verse 5, on the backs of exploiting the poor. These were people who were, they had used their power. In fact, some of them went to the extreme. In verse 6, you can see, they condemned people and murdered them. And you say, oh, that seems very far-fetched. Really? What world are you living in? And they did this, really, exploiting the poor. What do I mean by that? In verses 2 to 3, you see this thing where it says, your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. The corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. What is he saying? Now, you and I know, uh, most people, rich people, when you buy clothes, you are buying clothes so that you can use those clothes for 10 years, isn't it? Right? Some people that say, no, 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 all these things are the same. White shirt is white shirt. It's not true. You, let's, let's not lie. 500 naira shirts and 50,000 naira shirts, they are not really the same thing. They are not. I know you want to make yourself feel good. They are not really the same thing. And one of the things that makes the other one better, I'm not saying all the time, but one of the things that makes the other one better is that it lasts better, right? It, it should last better. It should last better. Some, this guy, uh, Zeno is telling to me, listen, no, this is what I'm telling you. <laughs> I should not, all those your expensive shoes doesn't matter. That's not the reason. Be careful with it. All right. So it should last better. And not, at the same time also, and we spoke about this, the difference between gold and, and wood. Because you guys said I didn't pronounce it well. Uh, panda, exactly. One thing we know is that the other one does not rust. Right? Gold and silver, they don't rust. So what's he talking about? Your gold and your silver is rusting. Your luxurious clothes, moth is eating them up. Now, he's being metaphorical. He's saying you have accumulated so much, so much that you cannot even use, such that the gold and the silver are actually now rusting. Such that these clothes that you've just been you putting there, putting there, putting there, I'm not talking about the ashwabi that you're not using. You put all of them there. It's, such a, it's come to such a point that it's being eaten up. And how did you accumulate all of this wealth? Now, this is where there is a problem. They accumulated this wealth, verse 4, by not paying the wages of their workers. 
It's sad. I still heard recently about, I hear these stories all the time. I'm like, why are some employers like this? I wish I could. I, you know when you have an interview now, most of the time we ask, what's the person, what have you done, your experience, blah, blah. You know, you, the employer asks the employees. I wish there was a way employees could say, before I take this job, can you, how can I be sure that you will at least pay me for the next one year? Because now you have many people, they start a job, yes, they get paid the first month, then the second month they get paid one week later, then the third month they don't get paid until half, and that's how you then get into three years, for, uh, three months, four months being old. And at the same time, the person is traveling business class somewhere. James is angry. You have accumulated wealth at the expense of the poor. And of course, we can see the kind of mentality that feeds that. Because if you think that the reason I got all this wealth, apart from the fact that I employed a number of people, and obviously, I am an employer of labor. But it all happened because of my planning, because of my acumen. That's why people say, it's my money. You want me to give you my money? The person that worked for you, my money. Because obviously, you are the one that did everything. Self-made man. What a horrible title. There's no such thing as someone who is self-made. And it's why many of these self-reliant people aren't generous. Because again, it's theirs. And so this accumulation of wealth, keeping away from the workers, you start thinking, do they even really deserve it? Of course I do. And that is why James is angry. There is a place for the gospel community to be angry. There is a place for the church of Jesus Christ to be angry. Angry with injustice in the society, whether they are occurring in the church or not. When sin prevails, when corruption thrives, when people are being slaughtered just because of their ethnic, uh, some people's ethnic biases or political thirst for power or some sense of religious superiority, Christians should stand up and say, enough is what? Enough. The fact that we are called to follow the Jesus who died for people's sins is not a call to be naively timid. The Bible says we should be angry but sin not. That is, there is a kind of anger that is required when we see injustices prevailing in society. When James saw what was going on here, he was angry. It's not at that point to now say, well, let's, let's talk. You know this thing they are doing, is not, is, you know it's not really good. You know, it, it, look at these people now. You see, when those who care for justice within the community of God's people are indifferent to the injustices that are happening outside of that community, we are not acting in line with the gospel. It's in this regard that the church should act as a prophet to the nation. I'm not talking about the prophet that is saying this is what's going to happen to Nigeria in five years to come and all of that. No. I am saying, speaking at God's mouthpiece to say this thing is wrong. Because if you are silent about it, guess what? Two things are not silent about it. The lifestyle of the people who are actually living off the poor and all of these things, and also the cries of those who are being exploited. Look, verse 4. Uh, verse 3 itself. The corrosion, their corrosion will testify against you. 
And the second one, the wages, of, uh, the wages you fail to pay, the workers who mold your fields are crying out against you. They are crying out where? They are crying out to God. And that God, according to James and all the prophets that we see, that God is going to respond. Make no mistake. He will respond. And you ask, how would he respond? Well, go back to James again. Verse 1. He says, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Weep and wail because there is a misery that is coming upon you. Now, what is this? When you see this word, weep and wail, quite often when it's used in the Old Testament as well with the prophets, it's normally attached to a certain theme of something that you see throughout the prophets, and it's called the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. This, friends, is not a time of joke. Whenever you see the day of the Lord, it is a time when God unveils his decisive judgment. And many times in the Old Testament, you will see, weep well, for the day of the Lord is coming. God did that in Assyria. God did that in Babylon. God did that to his own people, Israel, in the northern kingdom, and eventually did it to the southern kingdom. The day of the Lord came, and it was a day of weeping and wailing. And that happened because the cries of injustice, at some point, the cup becomes full. Now, but is that exactly how, because as I said, with all of these people, like in Israel, people were killed, people were slaughtered, some were taken into exile. Is that what's going to come or happen? Is that what James is exactly speaking about here? Now, don't forget, I said that was the day of the Lord, as we see in the Old Testament. But we find the day of the Lord, the theme itself, then taken into the New Testament and then expanded and given its fulfillment. I read one, two, let me just quickly read a, a particular, uh, three verses of scripture in 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 to 3. Now, concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. They will not escape. In other words, James is saying there is, uh, uh, Paul is saying here that there is no injustice that will be left unpunished. That is a promise. But you and I know this. There have been people who have perpetrated injustice in this world that have never, they died in luxury. Cancer did not come upon them. None of their children died. Their businesses are still there. If you say that there is no injustice that will be left unpunished, the day of the Lord will surely come. And we can see that here in Paul. What is he talking about? Of course, we know. When he says they will not escape, James is echoing this truth that Paul is also talking about, which is this. Either or let me put it this way. No injustice will be left unpunished because the God that we serve is a just God and he works on an eternal timetable. What Paul is talking about here is that the God who is in control of the world and in control of times has said, 
even if you think you escape in this world, in the world that is to come, you will not escape. God is a God of justice. He is the one in control. And no matter what your scheming and your boasting tells you, believe me, if you are acting in such a way, be careful. Because you will not escape. Now, can I say this without saying too much about it? Sometimes the reactions from the church about some of the things that happen, why we go off in directions where we start to curse, where we go off in directions where we start to bring supposedly the judgment of God in a temporal sense in a situation, is because we, the church, have become too worldly. When people and men of God say that Christians too also should carry arms, it is because we cannot wait for the judgment of God. We've become too worldly. The God who says vengeance is mine is not silent to the cries of the innocent. But he's saying that my people who are called by my name are not the ones that should meet out that same kind of judgment. Vengeance belongs to me. If we truly trust in a God of justice, there are many reactions to many of the injustices that go on. But can I tell you, violence is never one of those from the Christian's perspective. I've not said from the government's perspective. I've not said from other responsible agencies. But I'm saying as a Christian acting as a Christian, it's not one of them. They will not escape. Brings me to my third point. The salvation of the unjust. Now some would say, is that it? Is that all the church as a gospel community should offer? A constant tirade against people that leads to nothing constructive. Do we always protest? Do we always just shout, enough is enough, create groups? All that we do as a church is to tell people how bad they are. Now, let me first say that, actually, most of us Christians are not doing enough of that, first of all. But there are some of us, yes, actually, we do too much of it. It is not always constructive. Just, and some people eventually turn it into abuse. It's not always constructive. I don't think the message of the prophet was only just keep denouncing, denouncing, and denouncing. In fact, if you read the Old Testament prophets well enough, you would notice this. The message of the Old Testament prophet had two tracks. One track was what we've just spoken about, judgment. And there was denouncing that comes with that judgment. But the second track is what? Salvation. Even in extremely dire times, the prophets were hopeful. And we too, we should denounce, which sh- sh- while we denounce, we should also be hopeful for unjust people like the ones we see all around. Why? Why should we be hopeful for them? Because we too at some point were under the wrath of God. Ephesians 2 verse, Ephesians 3, uh, 2 verse 3. All of us who also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, and following his desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving wrath. Who is someone that deserves the wrath of God? I'm looking at all of them there here, and the person that is standing. Is it that you fail to pay your workers? No. But maybe you fail to pay your taxes. Or maybe you are unkind to that, that brother or sister that just tried to be friendly with you. 
Maybe you used your body in a sexual way that God has not approved of. One way or the other, none of us is meant to escape the wrath of God. But how did you escape? Well, Paul says, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. You see, this is the other part. If God saved you, why do you think God cannot save a murderer? If God saved you, why do you think God cannot save someone who is currently hoarding wealth? And then you ask, so how can such wicked people who feel they are totally in control of their lives and of others find salvation from God's eternal judgment? Well, and this is where I'll close. You see, there was a time when evil people decided to condemn and murder a totally innocent man who was also not opposing them. Acts chapter 2. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with Gentiles and the people of Israel. Notice, Pontius Pilate, Herod, the, the Gentiles, and the people of Israel. Why did they all gather to condemn the person of Jesus Christ? Who was in control? If you ask them, they were exercising their will, they were in control of the events, and they took this innocent man who was not opposing them, who did, who did anything but good, who did anything, all that he ever did was good. This was the most unjust event in all of history. They were totally in control. Also, they thought, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. In the most wicked act of history where men, the pride of men, came to the highest peak when they thought that they could actually murder God by their own control, God was still working behind the scenes. So that those same wicked people, if they turn to God, will receive salvation in Christ. In another place, Paul says that the only way God makes right, the people who are ungodly, he does it in a way that does not compromise his justice. God justifies people and he remains just. How does he do it? Because he takes the sin of the unjust and he puts it on Jesus Christ and condemns Jesus Christ in our place. Why can I say that if a man who actually murders 2,000 Christians today, if he puts his faith in Jesus Christ, God is just. Why is God just? Because that man's sin, that man's injustice, God has paid for it on the person of Jesus Christ. You see, there is no injustice that will not be paid. It will either be paid in hell or it's paid on the cross of Jesus Christ. And you say, well, that's not enough. Why should we put on Jesus? That is your statement that may send you to hell. Because if you say, why did you put on Jesus? Wasn't your own sin enough to be put on Jesus? Friends, you see, the gospel has inbuilt into it a sense of justice. I am totally for picketing. I am totally for hashtagging. I think we should have more lobby groups. I think we should have more activists. I hope some of us will think and have a greater conscience, or not the greater conscience, but let our consciences be riled up at things that have been going on and see what we can do for all, all of these things. There needs to be more actions of justice. 
But the most important act of justice you can actually commit is to tell somebody about a, just, a just God who, out of justice, punished Christ in their place. When people believe the gospel, their hearts start to change. And then they have an internal propelling that makes them act for justice in the world. If we have more of our politicians believing in this gospel, if we have more of our NGO leaders believing in this gospel, we'll have a more just society. If we have more terrorists believing in this gospel, we'll have more justice in our society. If we have more employers believing in this just gospel, we'll have more justice in our society. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Sometimes it comes to us tenderly, and sometimes it comes to us in a very hard, specific, hard-hitting way. But we thank you that your word is able to speak to us in all our different circumstances. You see your word and it says that we are called to be a just community. We ask, Lord, that you will enable the truth of your word to be etched in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And we ask, Lord, that the same Holy Spirit will give us the enablement to act in line with your gospel. We ask all this through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com City Church Love Jesus, love people, love Lagos.